0: For the past few election cycles, political observers have predicted that Latino voters would have a huge impact. But that hasn't turned out to be the case. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about what it'll take to increase Latino voter registration and turnout in the August primary and the November general election. Plus, the tepid response by a number of Republicans to Donald Trump's success in the presidential campaign has reminded a lot of observers of the reaction Barry Goldwater got from some in the GOP in 1964. We'll get a historical perspective. Also, the ASU Athletic Department is growing. Sun Devil Stadium is still undergoing a massive renovation, and men's tennis is returning. I'll find out from Athletic Director Ray Anderson about some of his priorities and how he's making the Sun Devils more competitive. And next week marks the 40th anniversary of the killing of Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles. I'll talk with Valley playwright Ben Tyler about his plans to remember June 2nd of 1976. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, ASU's athletic department is growing. Sun Devil Stadium is still undergoing a massive renovation and men's tennis is returning. We'll learn more from athletic director Ray Anderson. Also, how much does a response to Donald Trump's presidential campaign remind people of how Barry Goldwater was received in 1964? We'll get some historical perspective. We start today's program by looking at the potential power of Latino voters in the August primary and November's general election. Analysts have expected Latino turnout to get bigger and more impactful, but it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Raquel Tehran of Mi Familia Vota joins me to talk about steps being taken and what's needed to get Latino voters more involved. She is Arizona State Director for the organization. Welcome, Raquel. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: So I want to start off by referring to a column by Elvia Diaz in the Arizona Republic a couple of days ago. She cited the number that 30% of Latinos in the state who are eligible to vote aren't even registered. So what are efforts being taken, uh, undertaken right now to make sure that, that at least changes so people are at least eligible to say, I want to have my voice heard?
1: yeah absolutely well we know there's a a segment of of Latinos who are not registered to vote but I do want to point out that there are many Latinos who are registered to vote there's a half a million Latinos in the state of Arizona that are already registered to vote there's uh, a 400,000 of those are already on the permanent early voting list so we're making sure that it's easy for uh, Latinos to vote but we can also compare numbers from 2002 when only 48% of the Latino electorate was registered to vote vote compared to 2014 where we have 60 percent of the latinos who are registered to vote and uh, our groups not only me Vota, but we're working in coalition across the state to ensure that we are present where latinos are going to shop we are going to door to door uh, and make sure that we have those conversations to uh, engage them in the decision making process
0: i think the jumping off point for LVS column had to do with Prop 123. And right. turnout for that in general was not exactly fantastic. But there is this feeling, I think from some observers, mm-hmm. that you need someone like Sheriff Jorapaio or you need someone like perhaps Donald Trump to really get many Latino voters sort of energized. Do you think that's a valid point or no?
1: Well, you know, Latinos are watching uh, the, the how the debates um, uh, unfold. So it's not only on the candidates, but it's also about the issues. And many times... Uh, Latinos are are put in this box that the only issue that we care about is immigration, but I'll tell you when we are having conversations or when people come to us, to our organizations, we're we're talking about education. How do we better education? How do we have more access to health care? How do we have better jobs? The economy obviously is one of the biggest issues that worries everybody and uh, so it's not a single issue and it's not a single candidate, even though with all this rhetoric that we have seen, uh, in the last year and a half, with our, especially the the, the conservative and Republican uh, presidential candidates, and now and uh, specifically speaking about uh, Donald Trump, that has been a very uh, a motivator for our community to register to vote or even to become citizens.
0: How do you think it manifests itself when we think about people who do say things like Sheriff J. Arpaio, Donald Trump, people like that? And they don't emphasize the positivity part of it. Like, there are many positive reasons to vote as well. As you mentioned, they have an impact on certain public policy as opposed to going out to vote against someone. Do you think that is not emphasized enough, the fact that a lot of people vote because they want to bring about positive change as opposed to stop someone from winning?
1: Yeah, yeah, many, most of the people that want to vote want to have a positive change, but yes, they can have, they are having a lot of motivators right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to see on the ballot, uh, like you say, we're going to see the presidential candidates, we're going to see the sheriff, but that's not to say that that's the only thing that's going to motivate people to vote.
0: Is this a narrative that you, as someone who's worked so hard at this, are kind of tired of, or do you think that it's it's valid that? People need to, to see more Latinos actually go into the polls, even as you've increased registration.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it's uh, like we like we hear very often. And I think uh, as I put it, uh, that the 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 sleeping giant, right, or that that uh, the Latinos are't voting you know that's that's very agitational for us because like I said at the beginning uh, of the of the segment we've seen the numbers go up and and our internal research uh, with the resources that we have we've seen that numbers of Latinos uh, have have gone up in particular where we're focusing our our efforts so we wish we would have endless re- efforts to reach uh, to reach more Latinos but where we have concentrated our efforts we definitely have seen an impact and uh, a uh, growth.
0: Do you think it's important regardless of what point of view someone has? Because I think a lot of people will pigeonhole Latinos, especially because we've talked about immigration, mm-hmm. that many of them are going to be on the left naturally, or they're going to be supporting Democrats and whatnot. Do you think regardless of who people support, it is simply important to for Latinos to be out there and, and have the impact and realize how important their vote can be? Because I do think we sort of get wrapped up in that initially, mm-hmm. rather than thinking about each individual saying, well... You know, on certain issues, I agree with this candidate. The other ones I don't. So maybe I'm going to lean toward this person. Do you think that ends up bogging things down a little bit?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, like I know that I said immigration is not the only issue that Latinos care about. But certainly immig- immigration is an issue where you can see that uh, Republicans are uh, should know what la- what's at stake with a Latino vote and that Democrats cannot take the Latino vote for granted. So uh, it's uh, it is uh, it is a very independent vote, but when you see that things are coming back to the anti-immigrant rhetoric, or you or that uh, you know uh, folks are trying to uh, come against a particular segment of the of the, of the community, if it's Latinos, Mexicans, uh, if it's Muslims, uh, we're watching. So that has to be a, a very important point for all the candidates and all the uh, folks that are driving issues on the ballot
0: as well. Tell me about generational shifts and the importance of that. The importance of getting young people between 18 and 25 to register. Mm-hmm. And what's I mean, yeah. and one would think they should realize the impact they can have.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, that's a, a generation that, uh, you know, I, I think it's everybody struggles to engage that generation. However, uh, here in Arizona, there's. Uh, about 700,000 people who are uh, under 18 years of age. And of those, more um, more than half is Latino. And of those, 90% are U.S. citizens. So we have to we have to remember that number because these are folks. maybe we're uh, we're having a challenge in making sure that they register to vote and that they come out to vote, but eventually they're gonna become frequent voters. and that's what we're out to do. So, the organizations that we work with, our organization, Mi Familia Vota, are becoming very strategic of engaging young voters. We are in high schools. We just finished the high school voter registration competition across the state. We had uh, high schools in Tucson. We had high schools here in Phoenix. We registered over 1,000 people. And uh, and that uh, that number uh, might not seem a lot, but we're having those conversations on a 1-1 butt one-by-one basis, and they are also engaging their communities. That's what's most interesting.
0: Mark, let's wrap it up this way. Um, August and November. Yes. Certainly November, we would expect a big push by people in general, presidential election year. Are you going to be watching August, though, too, to see how many registered Latino voters take part in the primary season when it comes to picking... Who the congressional candidates me or, or legislative candidates may be. How important is that leading up to November, or do we look at those separately?
1: Yeah, we're going to look at them separately, but we're also going to make sure that they're able to cast their ballots. So that's a, at, at least here in Maricopa County, we have we have big concerns because, like I said earlier, a lot of many Latinos, four hundred thousand, already receiving their early voting their early ballots, and uh, we want to make sure that those ballots get casted. And there's a there's obviously there's two different elections, and there's going to be a bigger push and possibly more resources in the general elections. However, we're going to make sure that the folks that have their ballots, they can cast their ballots and they get counted.
0: Raquel Teran is Arizona State Director for Me Familia Vota. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: KJZZs. Here and now, I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Never Trump movement has seen its momentum slow at least a bit as an increasing number of elected GOP officials have decided to meet with the Republican frontrunner. There are others like former candidate Lindsey Graham and former nominee Mitt Romney who've been vocal about not supporting Trump. A recent article in Slate compared the reaction to Trump to what was happening in the 1964 campaign of presidential nominee and longtime Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. To put this into historical perspective and context, I'm joined by historian Jack August, who is Administrator for Institutional Advancement at the Arizona Capitol Museum. Jack, good morning.
2: Hey, good morning, Steve. Nice to be here.
0: And political analyst Mike O'Neill joins us from the road. Mike is host of the Think Tank radio program. Mike, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Uh, Jack, let's start off with this. Um, Donald Trump, seen as an outsider, Barry Goldwater had been a U.S. senator, was a U.S. senator again later. How did he become the rebellious outsider to all these, so many GOP, whether it's Nelson Rockefeller or some of these other folks?
2: Well, uh, uh, well, he he uh, represented a kind of a new kind of conservatism uh, uh, at the time. I- ironically, in 1952, he led, uh, the, the conservatives loved a guy named Robert Taft. Uh, that's when Goldwater got elected, but he supported uh, a moderate, uh, Eisenhower. Yet later on, uh, as uh, Senator Goldwater was in office, he uh, decided uh, that uh, maybe Eisenhower was a little too moderate, and he called uh, Eisenhower's administration kind of a dime store New Deal and uh, uh, started consolidating his ideas and uh, was uh, really represented the, a new kind of conservatism uh, on the right of the, political, uh, the, the Republican political spectrum, and uh, it still impacts uh, the party today. Mike,
0: it's funny when we think about the outsider kind that Trump is, a very different kind of outsider than Barry Goldwater was. Do you think the, the uh, comparisons are valid?
3: Uh, you know, for the most part, I don't. There has been a 50-plus year struggle within the Republican Party between the hardcore conservatives and the moderates. The conservatives clearly won in 64 with Barry Goldwater, and they won in 80-84 with Ronald Reagan. They would say that they lost every other time. But uh, Trump is different in that uh, he does not come from the conservative wing of the party. You look at his background, he has been pro-choice, pro-abortion. He has li- run his career on government subsidies. He has run uh, a – he's pro-eminent domain. He's, for, he's expressed uh, support for single-payer health. Uh, he's, he's more of a populist than a conservative, and that, in fact, is a lot of the reason – for the Strap, Stop Trump movement, which I think largely has died. But initially it, it, it occurred because the conservatives simply didn't trust him to pick up the conservative mantle. He's more of a populist. He's been, you know, very anti-immigration, but not out of ideological uh, uh, bent, more out of populism. And he, he found a strain that clearly resonates, but it's not uh, out of uh, ideological conservatism.
2: I agree with uh, with uh, Mike's uh, assessment there. Uh, what ties uh, the the '64 election? One of the common themes, I think, is that um, the establishment or the so-called establishment wing of the Republican Party was usurped by um, uh, something quite different. Uh, Donald Trump uh, and uh, uh, represents something different from the establishment, as did Barry Goldwater in 1964. Well,
0: so before we get a break here, guys, Jack, let me start with you on this. When we think about the revolution that Barry Goldwater hatch that eventually led to, to Ronald Reagan. Could the, could the Trump situation start almost an opposite revolution, as Mike was talking about some of the issues and where Trump stands on some of these things? Could this, in fact, in some ways cement the conservatives to say, okay, we're going to come back stronger? Is this going to force them to revolt in some way?
2: I think there will be a reaction or backlash, if you want to put it that way, uh, uh, to this. Uh, well, ultimately what happened in '64 was that uh, while uh, the conservatives... Uh, when the party and the, uh, the power of the Republican Party moved west, it moved to the right. Here we have something we can't tell the future, but here we have something, I think, quite different, as, as Mike pointed out. Mike, what are your thoughts on that as far as the, a new revolution?
3: Yeah, I think because he is not a true conservative, he has certain elements that are conservative. He, he will not be long-term satisfactory to the conservatives. I think that they would ultimately coalesce and either remain as a faction within the Republican Party or strike out as a, a, a new pure conservative party.
0: That's political analyst Mike O'Neill. Also here is historian Jack August. We'll continue our conversation comparing the never Trump to the never Goldwater movement. Stay with us on here and now. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with historian Jack August, administrator for Institutional Advancement at the Arizona Capitol Museum, and political analyst Mike O'Neill, host of the Think Tank radio program. We're talking about a Slate article comparing the Donald Trump campaign to Barry Goldwater's in 1964. Mike, one of the things that comes up a lot, and even Paul Ryan, who is going to, at least at this point, seems like he's going to be running the Republican convention later this summer. A lot of people are worried or at least wondering about what the convention may look like coming up. What sort of visual does that have for the Republican Party now? Does it look good to have conflict in some sense because that's what voters seem to want now? Or is it more like, oh, my gosh, looks like this party's a mess?
3: I'm watching this conflict dissipate. Okay. It looked for a while like there was going to be really substantial conflict, but that only lasted until the moment when it became clear that Trump was going to be unbeatable for the nomination. And what we're seeing is one more manifestation of the old adage, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And that's what they're doing. And Ryan is going to be next. There may be a couple of holdouts. It would be very difficult for me to see a Romney backing down off his comments. The Bushes have already said they're not going to attend the convention. McCain's not going to uh, attend the convention. But it, it looked like it was going to be huge, the percentage that were backing off of their support for Trump. But it, it, it's increasing like a handful.
0: Well, to what Jack said about the establishment, then, does that, in fact, make, make it look good for the, for the average middle-class voter who says, all right, it's good, I'm glad this guy is anti-establishment, and the establishment's falling into line?
3: Was that for me? Yes, Mike. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think the establishment is falling in line, but but it's a, it, the new establishment of the Republican Party, I think, is the conservative wing. I think for the first time, the, the oddity is I think the conservative wing is dominant, but due to the particular way that this specific... Uh, campaign played out that everybody, they had 17 candidates, nobody wanted to attack Donald Trump because one, they wanted to collect, they were all convinced that he was going to collapse and they wanted not to alienate his voters. And so we have the oddity. I think for the first time the conservatives really are a majority in the Republican Party and they are just nominating really the least conservative of the 17 candidates, just owing to the fact that nobody gave him a chance of winning until he was almost inevitable.
2: Jack, what are your thoughts on that? Boy, I, uh, once again, uh, Mike uh, makes some great points. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, I think the, conservative, uh, uh, the conservatives in the Republican Party, in fact, at this point in history, uh, have emerged dominant. What Barry Goldwater started in '64. Uh, and uh, what upset uh, President Eisenhower as he sat in Gettysburg in retirement. Um, uh, Earl Eisenhower, whom I knew, he was uh, President Eisenhower's nephew, uh, uh, recalls vividly after the famous uh, statement at the GOP convention in 64, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. That statement really upset President Eisenhower and... Uh, Earl Eisenhower, his nephew, who uh, lived out here and recently passed away, had to uh, take Senator Goldwater to uh, Gettysburg and have him explain to President Eisenhower what he meant because he was not really ready to endorse uh, uh, candidate Goldwater at the time. And I think we may see uh, some of that going on, some explanation behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, and I, I agree with Mike that I think you will see people starting to fall in line. So, Jack, in 64, though, were Republicans maybe less concerned about winning I know that's hard to
0: say but even the fact that they were running against Lyndon Johnson who was an incumbent at that point does that is that a different dynamic as well with 2016 because it seems like you both talked about people falling into line is that about victory whereas in 64 it was more about a philosophy and less about victory
2: Yes I think it was about a philosophy uh, the, the conservatives won the party uh, and the establishment lost uh, but they uh, planted the seed of an idea that has uh, over a half century I think consolidated. Uh, and uh, become uh, a new kind of establishment, a new kind of conservative establishment. Uh, I've never seen anything like this, and I I wonder if Mike has uh, ever uh, seen anything quite like this historically or in, in, uh, in any other way.
3: Well, we'd certainly have to go back way more, further than 50 or 60 years into serious history. We, we might find it there. But, yeah, it has been a long-term thing. I agree. In 1964, the Goldwater wing of the party did not expect to win. No. They were, but they said, we have seized control of the Republican Party. And,
2: Interesting. Jack, go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh- Yeah, I guess we lost uh, Mike there, but uh, yes, I think uh, uh, that they won the party. Uh, They knew they were going to lose the election. Uh, I think one thing that the two candidates share, um, Senator Goldwater and uh, Donald Trump, uh, was that you couldn't predict what they were going to say. Their handlers really didn't have them uh, on their talking points, and uh, that frustrated the people like Denison Kitchell, who was the campaign manager. He was a, a lawyer, uh, very measured, uh, very careful, and, uh, and used to getting up at 6 in the morning and doing this. A campaign kind of threw him off, uh, but they had a hard time controlling Barry and what he would say, uh, and I think um, uh, I don't know who's, uh, how many people are trying to handle Donald Trump, the candidate, but I, I would suspect that there are some similar issues and challenges. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the word issues, Jack, because I want to talk about that a
0: little bit. What were some of the prime issues in 64 that made Barry Goldwater controversial? Well, I, mean, I imagine civil rights was one. Yeah,
2: he voted uh, uh, when the civil rights bill came up. I think it was a month or two before uh, the uh, the Cal Palace Convention. Uh, Uh, He had voted. He was one of seven senators that voted against the Civil Rights Act. And later on, I got to ask him about that. Uh, He was still around when I was doing my my book on Senator Hayden. He was kind enough to interview me. He was very funny, very candid. Uh, And he gave me kind of a a legalistic constitutional reason uh, uh, because uh, some of his actions uh, with the integration of the Arizona National Guard and others uh, kind of – betrayed that notion so uh, i don't think uh uh, you know i I still think that's that's a a topic for further fleshing out but he did vote against the civil rights act uh both uh, rockefeller the uh, the first candidate that kind of the the one that dropped out and then scranton in that last month uh tried to uh put a human face as it were on the uh the moderate conservative uh, the moderate party uh, as opposed to the conservatives at the time and, Mike and, I, Eastia, and I think yeah, that,
3: may, that may have uh, sealed the Republicans' fate as the anti-civil rights party, even though a higher proportion of Republicans than Democrats actually voted for the Civil Rights Act. But the fact that a month later they nominated one of the few people in the Senate to vote against it, I think influenced the uh, image of the party for decades to come.
2: Yes, and you know, and I think... Uh, uh, we, we i think from that famous campaign the ad the uh, the 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 child picking the daisy ad that's famous but another one that the article that uh, that uh, our host uh, Steve Goldstein has referenced uh uh, at the end of the article, there's an ad where there's a, a, a Republican all his life. And he says, you know, we just nominated the wrong guy on November 3rd. I'm voting for Lyndon Johnson. That was a pretty powerful and compelling ad. And they went they ticked off the reasons why uh, somehow uh, the establishment Republicans had lost control to these uh, kind of wild eyed conservatives.
0: And gentlemen, let's wrap it up. Yeah, Mike, let me wrap it up with this. I want to talk a little bit about the voters or at least the people we're seeing attending Trump rallies. Um, how big a concern is that, this idea that it seems it seems to, not certainly not, not going to pay with too broad a brush here, but a certain number of supporters of Trump certainly seem like people who are saying things that make a lot of other people uncomfortable, whether it's related to race uh, or immigration or whatnot. Uh, is that something that could ultimately hurt the party in November?
3: I would say yes. I mean, when you have Klan members openly openly supporting Trump, I mean, and and he, uh, at least in the first instance, was reluctant to disavow Donald Duke. Uh, that ties with a brush that's outside of the mainstream, and it, and it's a real risk for him.
2: And that makes me think of uh, the same thing in '64, Mike, uh, where the John Birch Society. Uh, uh, Barry Goldwater did not uh, disavow those guys, and those guys were calling Eisenhower a communist. And uh, uh, it it was pretty, the rhetoric was pretty uh, uh, extreme and uh, in some ways uh, similar. So you have the David Duke and the the John Birch uh, issues on the extreme uh, wing of the party or outside the pale of the party, and uh, that's another kind of historical parallel.
0: That's historian Jack August, the author of many books about Arizona history, including Carl Hayden and Dennis D. Consini and Raul Castro. He's also administrator for institutional advancement at the Arizona Capitol Museum. We're also joined by political analyst Mike O'Neill. He's host of the Think Tank. Mike, thanks for the time. Jack, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Arizona State University Athletic Department has a lot of programs and a lot of competition from inside the Pac-12 Conference and around the community. But that hasn't stopped Athletic Director Ray Anderson from making major hires, including men's basketball coach Bobby Hurley and men's swimming coach Bob Bowman, who brought Olympic champion Michael Phelps along. Ray Anderson joins us now for a few minutes from the road. Ray, thanks for squeezing us in.
4: Hi, Steve. How you doing? Down here in Tulsa for the uh, NCAA Tennis Championship. So uh, she's got a couple of our women down here, so I'm going to go see them in a few minutes.
0: Well, terrific. Okay. So what's the latest? I think a lot of people are are into what's happening with Sun Devil Stadium as the season will be kicking off at the very late summer. Will renovations be at the stage you want when football season gets started?
4: Well, they sure better be uh, (laughs) because it's (laughs) September 3rd when we open up against Northern Arizona, Steve. Uh, Phase two will be ready. Uh, and Hunt uh, and Hunt Construction in combination during the stadium uh, have repeatedly promised us that they will deliver on time. And uh, as you look at the progress, and I see it every day out my window, uh, I'm very confident that Phase 2, which is the west side, will be done for kickoff on uh, this, uh, September 3rd.
0: How important is that kind of renovation, Ray? How important is it to eventually renovate what, when I was a kid, was the Activity Center, which is now Wells Fargo Arena?
4: Well, you know, Wells Fargo Arena as our basketball arena. Uh, I think we all acknowledge it is not up to standards for Pac-12 or real top elite uh, NCAA play. So uh, that's in the queue. Uh, No timing per se, but I think we all realize that uh, it's the the facility uh, that really does need some attention. So uh, as we finish this uh, uh, football reinvention, we are certainly – Uh, focused in on Wells Fargo. So don't have a timing, per se, uh, but uh, I personally would like to see that started uh, a lot sooner than later because it does make a difference in terms of the game day presentation, in terms of recruiting, in terms of how your program is perceived, and we want to be a top-notch program. So it's coming.
0: Ray, explain to us a little bit, if you would, why that is so important. I mean, I think from a cosmetic standpoint, people can see it, but in other ways. I mean, how does it help even some of your athletes get ready how does it help people even enjoy the game more when they're attending it
4: well you know it's uh, it's it's the experience uh you know there's so much uh that people can do instead of coming to a game day venue uh with all the things you can do at home with the uh, fancy tvs and sound systems so uh, a fan amenities and things that really uh, motivate players to want to play in top facilities in front of full crowds. that means you have to have a venue that people want to come to on a consistent basis. So for the fan uh, enjoyment and to get them out of the house and into the arenas, you have to have updated facilities and amenities. And to recruit the best student-athletes who want to perform uh, and have their game day and top-notch facilities, you've got to do both. If, in fact, you want to be uh, an elite program, which we do.
0: And this department's had a reputation, Ray, for a while about – and I don't know if it's, it's the alumni network, but not necessarily having quite the same big donors as some other large universities. I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers. I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's certainly the perception. Uh, is that something that is true, and if so, what will change that?
4: Well, we certainly are, are challenged, uh, uh, and we are looking at that, uh, very frankly, under our leadership as an opportunity. Uh, no, Arizona State University has not had the donor and alumni support of a lot of the other top programs and including some of the programs in the Pac-12 but what that presents for us Steve, is an opportunity so uh, we are out there strategically trying to engage uh, 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 alumni and and donors uh, and I think they're starting to really respond to us in a positive way so uh, true it hasn't been at the level in the past uh, uh, that others have enjoyed uh, but also true I think we're making a lot of headway Uh, and getting ourselves to the point where ASU will also be able to say our alumni and the folks in this community are really contributing at a significant level to Sun Devil Athletics, and I think we're going to get there.
0: Now, you've personally been really generous in contributing some of your own money. This sounds like a commitment that a lot of other school leaders, executives at other places wouldn't make. Uh, why, Why are you doing that?
4: Well, I, I think, uh, and I've always believed in the, the, the old cliché, the concept, you got to put skin in the game. Uh, and so we put uh, our uh, money where our mouth is, uh, another cliché, because we want to be able to much more credibly uh, ask others to do what they can up to their means. So, uh, But we believe in what is happening here at ASU institutionally, and certainly I believe in what we're going to do with the Sun Devil Athletic Program Uh, and so we think it's just the right thing to do my wife buffy and i to invest ourselves in that which we are promoting uh to others and so uh, it was just the right thing for us to do uh and i think uh, us leading by example instead of just talking uh is having a positive impact so uh we're delighted to do it we're sun devils we've adopted this community they've engaged us Uh, we love our student athletes we love our programs we love our colleagues on campus Uh, So it it was something we thought was right to do. And very frankly, we think it will encourage others to step up more vigorously as well.
0: You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A couple of more minutes left with ASU Athletic Director Ray Anderson, who joins us from the road in Tulsa. Ray, you've brought in some very accomplished coaches, whether it's Bob Bowman or Bobby Hurley. What drew them here? What does the department offer that at least is increasingly seen as special?
4: Well, I think it's the vision of the whole university, uh, first and foremost, led by Dr. Crow. Innovation, inclusivity, uh, creativity, uh, not necessarily being constrained by the the status quo or being constrained by the notion that we've always done it this way. So uh, he articulated the vision to me, Steve. And fortunately, uh, I've been able to articulate the vision to folks like uh, Bobby Hurley, and Bob Bowman and Zeke Jones and Tracy Smith and others to say, come here and put your stamp on a program. Help us build something uh, special. It's, we're not a startup per se, but we're certainly a place where uh, they can come in and, and really put their mark on a program as part of advancing the whole vision of the university led by Dr. Crow, in which I am now honored to lead as a part of athletics. So they get it. Uh, and so it's a special place with a lot of special opportunities. And these guys and gals who are joining us as head coaches, Stevie Mussey and others, figure that out very quick quickly and then take advantage of the opportunity. And that's why we believe that our future is very bright at Sun Devil Athletics.
0: Ray, you've also heard, I'm sure, over the years, having been in athletics in many different forms, that there are some people who are concerned when you have a big university and doing so much with athletics and sometimes that – whether there's crossover in terms of how much money may be spent or whether some of the students are really student-athletes or not and whatnot. Um, Does that concern you at all? I mean, is there a feeling that uh, when people express that to you, that there's, let's say, too much money in athletics or a university spends too much time and energy on that? How do you respond?
4: I respond that uh, sports has been uh, a part of uh, our history and certainly is vitally important. Uh, I think someone reminded me that the Olympics were created by uh, academics uh, because they know and understand that uh, competition and teamwork and sacrifice and uh, motivation as a group is really important. So uh, I think that athletics is a absolute uh, complement and boost for a lot of uh, academic institutions. And I think uh, folks who uh, have a different opinion, uh, very frankly, I don't think they're correct. Uh, I happen to be biased because I enjoyed uh, being a student athlete myself and The uh, scholastic and academic mix uh, is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So uh, I would argue to anybody that uh, as long as there's balance uh, in the uh, equation, academics, athletics, it's a great, great place to be.
0: Ray Anderson is athletic director at Arizona State University, joining us from the road in Tulsa. Ray, thank you for the time. Good to talk with you.
4: My pleasure, Steve. See you, buddy.
0: On June 2, 1976, the Datsun 710, owned by Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles, was blown up in downtown Phoenix. The sound of the explosion was captured by an attorney, who happened to be recording his own dictation.
3: stage would be to find
0: for Nearly 40 years later, the killing of Don Bowles remains one of the most shocking events to have ever happened in Phoenix. The bomb went off in the middle of the day as Bowles was going about his work. Valley playwright Ben Tyler, who has written extensively about some of Arizona's better-known political figures, including Barry Goldwater and Evan Meekum, has put together an event to mark the 40th anniversary. It's called You Can't Kill a Story. It'll be held on Thursday night, June the 2nd, at the Clarendon Hotel, which is where Bull's car exploded. And Ben Tyler is with me now. Ben, as someone who's chronicled the lives of well-known Arizonans, where does the death of Don Bulls fit into modern Arizona history?
5: It's one of those moments that is frozen in time. You know, uh, for people of my generation, uh, you know where you were when you first heard that JFK had been assassinated. And that really relates to this in Phoenix on a smaller scale, I think. it's uh, a moment, it was frozen in time. I've talked to so many people who say, oh, yeah, I know exactly where I was when I heard about this the business with Don Bowles. It was so outrageous. It was so outlandish. Uh, and really, in many ways, Steve, I think it represents a delineation of a borderline from when Phoenix stopped being a small town and became a big city. Things like reporters getting blown up just didn't happen here. Actually, it didn't happen anywhere. I've talked to enough law enforcement and other people and there used to be uh, among the underworld this sort of understood rule that you don't kill a policeman and you don't kill a reporter because you will be pursued relentlessly, and it would just cause too much of a, a problem. Uh, this was an obvious hit. If you wanted to get rid of somebody, you could make it look like an accident if you wanted to, but this was sending a
0: message. What I thought one of the most fascinating things to talk about media members or members of the press is how so many of them came from across the country to try to finish some of the stuff that Bulls was working on and KY Radio would broadcast some of, the, some of the information and whatnot called the Arizona Project, which I think is, is fascinating. Had you ever taken a crack at writing, let's say, a, a theater version of, of what happened with that?
5: I'm hoping that this is going to be the beginning of that because the story is so enormous. I mean, the event that we're talking about that we're going to do on June 2nd, I decided to just go down as narrow as we possibly could, and we're just going to talk about June 2nd, and that's it. That day, the day that literally shook Phoenix um, and beyond that, I like to think of it <laughs> it's like a Russian novel it, there are dozens and dozens of characters and it goes on for decades uh, in the pursuit of uh, who did this, why they did it, who ordered it 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 is it is so complex um, that I thought that you know having people come in. This is what the audience is going to see on June 2nd. Mm -hmm. These are all regular folk, not showbiz people, not actors. These are people who were directly involved on June 2nd in the form of either a firefighter or law enforcement. One of the gentlemen who's going to be speaking was the first man to reach Don Bowles. He was a construction worker working across the street, heard the explosion, ran over, saw him laying on the ground, pulled off his belt, did a tourniquet around the guy's leg to try to stop the bleeding. Uh, journalists who were there uh, involved with it. So these are all people uh, who were involved directly with it just on that day. And, by the way, uh, Rosalie Bowles' case, her uh, her last name now, Don's widow, is going to be there that night, and she's going to be speaking about June 2nd. I was really kind of reluctant to approach her about this because it's such a sensitive subject, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But this woman's brave, and uh, she was really pleased that Phoenix, Still remembers this story 40 years later, and she's flying out from South Carolina to uh, to be with us and, and speak on it.
0: How do you approach someone like this, even many years later, knowing that her life was completely upended in such a shocking way, and as you said, a way that no one would have ever expected? I mean, how, how did she sure. seem all these years later talking about it?
5: Time is the great healer, and I don't think that this is a wound that has completely or ever will heal with her completely, or for that matter, his family as well. His daughter, one of his daughters is going to be there as well, Diane Bowles, But she seemed at least to be at peace with it. Um, I I approached it with great respect. I told her, and this is the way I feel about anything we do, that our goal is to, one, preserve history, and two, honor Don's memory. Because I don't think anybody should ever forget this.
0: It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with longtime Valley playwright Ben Tyler of the Arizona Centennial Theater Foundation. We're talking about the event coming up on June the 2nd, which is the 40th anniversary of the bombing of Don Bowles' car. The event is called You Can't Kill a Story. Ben, is this one of those examples of when we hear the, the old phrase that truth is stranger than fiction, does that apply here?
5: I think so. It, it was so outrageous. It was so outlandish uh, to see something like this occur that it just, it, it took, I think, everyone, including law enforcement a few days to really get their head around it and, and, and realize that this is what had happened, that this was an intentional murder of, of a reporter. And that line, by the way, you can't kill a story, um, I actually got that from going to the museum in Washington, D.C., which is where Don Bull's car is now on display, and uh, that was they had a bunch of different quotes from reporters uh, up on the wall, and one of them was, you can kill a reporter, but you can't kill a story, and that just stayed with me.
0: I think back to again what I mentioned about the work you've done about Barry Goldwater and Evan Meekham, and in some ways, though, though there's seriousness certainly to both of what went on in, in those men's lives and whatnot. Sure. Uh, the public aspects of their lives were, you know, I mean, they were politicians. They they won they yeah. won races, and 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 there seems like there's much more of a a way to have the multi pronged element because you can have fun in some points with things Evan Meekham said or even things Barry Goldwater said. But with mm-hmm. this, it's, it's so much, there's just so much tragedy and seriousness to it. Is that a challenge well, you, to you as a, as a playwright as well?
5: Yes, and you just said it. This is a tragedy. It's kind of a misnomer. These days, people uh, think of comedy and drama as being the opposites of each other, and that's really not accurate. Drama is comedy and tragedy. Uh, those masks, the smiling and frowning masks you see, comedy and, and tragedy, This is definitely a tragedy. Um, And, you know, it's. uh, I I think that there probably would be some humor in this story, uh, looking back at what newspapers used to be, uh, how they used to operate, how people used to the news cycle that we used to operate on back in 1976. But ultimately, this is a story about a man who lost his life exercising his First Amendment rights. Uh, that's what makes it an interesting story to me. There's no point in just uh, regurgitating an old story unless it speaks to today. And I think that this story definitely speaks to today.
0: Ben, as you mentioned, the Bulls car is in Washington, D.C. Are there obvious examples or clear examples of Don Bulls here somewhere in the valley? If people had wanted to learn more about him, uh, are there exhibits set up here? I mean, if people really wanted to, to not travel to Washington...
5: Sadly, not enough. I can tell you that we're, doing, we're holding this event at the Clarendon Hotel. We're going to be up on the rooftop, and this is where it occurred. This is where the explosion took place. When you walk into the lobby, I, I, I will say this about the Clarendon, and I, I think it's something that I'm very proud of for them. You walk into the lobby of the Clarendon Hotel, and to your immediate right at the front door there is a bust of Don Bowles, and when you walk down the hallway that leads out to the parking lot where his car was blown up, uh, they have a gallery of uh, images, photographs of uh, bowls, of newspapers, of uh, photographs that were taken of the car uh, immediately following uh, the explosion. So, really, that is the only spot in Phoenix where I can think that you would find something like that.
0: Ben Tyler of the Arizona Centennial Theater Foundation. We've been talking about the event coming up on June the 2nd, 2016, at the Clarendon Hotel in Phoenix. It's the 40th anniversary. Of the bomb that eventually killed arizona republic reporter don Bowles. the event is called you can't kill a story the murder of don bulls featuring first-person stories and focused just on that date that june 2nd of 1976 ben thanks for talking thank you steve you're listening to kjzz's here and now in phoenix i'm steve goldstein Science fiction on the page or on film seems like it's becoming less fictional because it feels like reality may be more rapidly catching up with our imaginations. But just because smartwatches and virtual reality are becoming commonplace, that doesn't mean there's nothing left to look forward to or even freak out about. ASU's Center for Science and the Imagination is kicking off the History of the Future film series tomorrow night at Film Bar in Phoenix with Westworld a movie about malfunctioning robots that puts vacationers in danger. One highlight is seeing Yul Brynner portraying one of those robots humorously moseying into a bar to get one of those unsuspecting vacationers. Bob Beard of the Center for Science and the Imagination is with me to talk about the film series. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Steve. All right, so what is a film like Westworld, made in the 70s? Tell us about what the creators... Thought about what the
6: future might be like, yeah. i think uh, I think Westworld, in particular, is really interesting because it was uh, written and directed by Michael Crichton, of course, you know, speculative fiction science fiction author. And this was one of his first science fiction films that talked about robots, and specifically about computer viruses. This was the first time in, one of the first times in fiction, and then uh, the first time in film that computer viruses were mentioned. So a lot of these things were foretold by science fiction, and they're coming to fruition now. You know, it's not a super
0: high-tech film, obviously, made in the 70s, and yet it does have this sort of pervading notion of doom in some ways, and yet at the same time you've got, like I said, Yul Brenner wearing a cowboy hat. So at the same time, it's sort of, it's in some ways hard to take seriously, but is that is that part of its appeal as a series like this, as part of a series?
6: Yeah, you know, I, I think the Westworld is really interesting because... At the time, it might have been scary, but we look at it now because it's it's kind of silly. It ha- it was the precursor to a lot of these killer robot tropes. Uh, you know, it, it might have uh, inspired the Terminator and it might have sort of reproduced some of these things. And these are the things that we're understanding now. And so when you look at a movie from over 40 years ago, yeah, it seems a little trite and cliched, but at the time it was probably uh, groundbreaking. Are there lessons to be learned from a film like this or just that like don't relax so much in your vacation because
0: the robots might get you.
6: (laughs) Um, Listen, like a Roomba at old Tucson is not as uh, deadly as Yul Brynner in Westworld. Um, (laughs) But I think what's what's interesting and what we're doing with our history of the future film series is we're looking at these science fiction films from the past decades and reading them for their predictions and their val- values and their anxieties over the technology of their day. Because like I said, we're dealing with those now. And so in a film like Westworld about killer robots run run amok, um, there are current questions right now and discussions about ethical protocols for robots and artificial intelligence. There's a, actually a great article in, uh, in Slate um, that asks, if uh, if a robot commits murder or, or if a robot kills someone, is it murder or is it just like a case of product liability? So these are questions that we're dealing with right now that Westworld uh, was addressing over 40 years ago. So before we get into the talk about the rest of the series, I want to still talk about this robot thing
0: a little bit because it seems as though, and I think this was even seen in uh, the recent Avengers movie, The Age of Ultron as uh-huh. well, where there's someone creates a robot to do certain positive things, and then the robot goes out of control and ends up trying to kill human beings why do you see that as something that seems to be coming up so frequently in, in sci-fi this idea that the almost rejecting the creator and deciding that the creation is,
6: is better or more powerful than the creator? I think I, I mean, that really goes back to Frankenstein, right? One of the very first science fiction stories was about the creator and its creation and sort of, you know, this technology run amuck narrative that that is so prevalent in science fiction. And I think, it's really interesting too if you look at a film like westworld like westworld the amusement park like in the film is this simulacrum right like it trades on these old west tropes of like shootouts and bar fights and it's exaggerated it's this exaggerated expectation that we have culturally and i think what westworld did the movie now is that like i said it inspired these killer robot tropes and so when you have these things repeated and reproduced over and over again, that's what we understand robots to be. And part of this film series is looking at these movies and understanding where these ideas came from and, and maybe dispelling them a little bit or, or easing people's fears about it. But it's still killer robots run amok, so we're going to have some fun with it. And I'm also struck by this idea that, and I, I have not seen the film in a while, though I have to admit as a
0: kid I watched it frequently yeah. with commercials, so, so it wasn't, probably wasn't quite as fun. But this idea that are we supposed to feel anything for the robots? Are we supposed to feel as though, again, these humans on vacation, we can have shootouts, we can shoot the robot who cares, we can beat up the robot who cares. Is there?
6: Are we supposed to think maybe there's some humanity beneath all the metal? I wonder if that's what Michael Crichton was getting at, because it's also this, it, it can also be read as this satire of, you know, uh, all of this technology and, and a lot of the worlds. So, so Westworld is just one of t- part of this amusement park complex. And the other worlds are medieval world and Roman world. And all of these sort of settings were points where humans were using new technologies to shape their world. And Westworld is a movie about people using this advanced technology as a way to provide shallow and self-centered entertainment, right? So, so you know, maybe the robots, it was never sort of said in the movie but maybe the robots were reacting to that and and maybe they were um you know a little uh, a, a little jealous that that's what they had been relegated to so it never really says but it, but it's an interesting statement i guess the film
0: must have done okay too because if i'm remembering right there were i think there was a sequel called future world at some point that came out not that much later
6: there was yeah there and it also uh it also spawned uh, a short lived tv show too so yeah i think the budget on it was like a million dollars and it made 10 million dollars in the 70s which is Nothing to sneeze at. Wow. It's here and now on KJZ.
0: I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A couple of minutes left in our conversation with Bob Beard of ASU Center for Science and the Imagination. We're talking about a film series. It's called The History of the Future, and it starts tomorrow night at Film Bar. Bob, the other films in the series are Outland, The Lawnmower Man, and Equilibrium. Now, Outland starred Sean Connery. The Lawnmower Man. Pierce Brosnan, I think, was in that one. I have never heard of Equilibrium. Can you tell us a little bit about these three films?
6: Sure, yeah. So uh, so Outland is a movie uh, from the 80s uh, with Sean Connery, and it's sort of another Western. It's basically high noon uh, set against the backdrop of a mining community on the moon of Jupiter, I believe. Uh, and so it gets at this question about planetary resources. Another thing that we're grappling with today, Lawnmower Man was in the 90s, so we're attacking these sort of chronologically and looking at their gripping visions of the future, and uh, that was Pierce Brosnan and Jeff Fahey uh, talking about virtual reality and uh, learning in these virtual spaces, uh, which is also something that we're coming up against right now with Oculus Rift and virtual reality basically being touted as the next great computing platform. And then Equilibrium is a really interesting movie that came out in the early 2000s, and it was sort of eclipsed by The Matrix, mm. uh, and, and it has a lot of the similar themes of, you know, sort of a surveillance society and, uh, and a totalitarian state, so that's a, that's a little bit of a downer, but it's still fun because it's got Christian Bale doing karate with guns. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, this probably applies more to Westworld, but when a film looks
0: a little bit schlockier, especially to our sensibilities in 2016, in some ways, does that make it scarier? because it almost seems like it's it could happen more likely like this idea that something because we're we're less likely to have some superhuman virtual reality robot come into our uh, walk through the wall and yet there's something like there's certain things that that feel a
6: little bit closer to reality maybe yeah and and i think what's also really interesting about these films and just sort of it, it's sort of in the background literally in the background is these science fiction Um, interfaces. So if you look at Westworld, uh, it's not far, far in the future. And it wasn't intended to be far in the future. It was sort of near future for the 70s. And so some of the things that you see in it are, um, you know, are are very fantastical. And then some of the things that you see